Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. And despite all those accolades, I'm, I'm humbled to be here. I have been charged to talk about what particle physicists do, what they take to be true, and what they mean by uncertainty. If you look closely at the practice of particle physicists, I believe you will find that the meaning of truth is not far from the traditional one. Truth is that which conforms to reality. Reality means those objects or entities or relations that are the subject of experimental investigation. Particle physics is not just interested in cataloging these things, but in understanding the causes behind them. My focus is not on those objects or entities or relations, though some background is necessary. Instead, my focus is on truth and uncertainty. Given the finiteness of our measurement devices and methods, our formulation of the laws of physics, and our interaction with the natural world, what statements can we make about those objects or entities or relations that are true? Let me begin with a story about discovery in particle physics, one from your lifetime. Even this brief story is laden with jargon, and one goal of this talk is to make what I say comprehensible to other scientists and, I hope, philosophers of science. In late June 2012, CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research, announced an upcoming scientific seminar of some in port. Previously, representatives of two experimental collaborations at the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, operating at CERN had met privately with the CERN director. Adding to the excitement was that a certain theoretical physicist named Peter Higgs would be in attendance. The world was not disappointed. On July 4, 2012, the ATLAS and CMS experiments presented independent evidence of a signal consistent with a particle called the Higgs boson, the last piece of the standard model of particle physics. The evidence consisted in quantifying the significance of an excess of data containing two photons or combinations of four electrons and muons. A statistical analysis indicated that had the same experiment been repeated about one million times, only one of those one million experiments would have produced a false signal from the expected backgrounds. This passed the so-called five sigma barrier and was deemed by the field to be a discovery. After the announcement, the particle physics community let go a collective sigh of relief. Further measurements have and do confirm that this is indeed the Higgs boson of the standard model. What is this standard model of particle physics? It is a prescription for making precise mathematical predictions of the behavior of matter and fields from the standard model Lagrangian, a function which summarizes the dynamics of those entities. The standard model Lagrangian is at the core of the standard model and can be made to fit on a coffee mug. But complexity has been shuffled into the meaning of the symbols. To a particle physics practitioner, a more useful form is here. 
where the symbol representing the Higgs boson is highlighted in red. I note the absence of any reference to gravity. The most noticeable force to you and I is so weak as to be negligible in the realm of particle physics. What happened to our understanding of the standard model after July 4th, 2012? To help explain this, we can look at the relationship between the entities of the standard model in a simplified form. So here I show in this table that there are two types of objects, the entities of the standard model. There is matter, which makes up stuff, and there is the force, which is what binds stuff together. Um, the matter is called, are called fermions, which is a technical term. Um, they're all spin one-half particles. They intrinsically have a property called spin. They fall into two categories, quarks and leptons. The leptons themselves are those that are charged and those that are neutral, the neutrinos. There are four forces here. There is the strong force, which is carried by gluons. There is the electromagnetic force, which couples to the charge of particles, which is carried by the photon. And beneath each of these is a little symbol that we usually put in things called Feynman diagrams, pictures we draw about what is going on to help us understand. There is the weak force, which couples with something called handedness, which I will not go into, um, and less originally is carried by the W and Z bosons. And then finally, there is the Higgs, um, denoted as an H or a dashed line, which couples to mass. And the vertical length um, shows which force each of the particles is uh, subjective to. And we see that the weak and the Higgs force are as important, they're equally as important, and they, they talk to everything. And the Higgs there is, is quite important in giving mass to all of the quarks and leptons, but also explaining why these W and Z bosons have mass and the gluon and the photon do not. Okay. So the Higgs boson was not just the last missing piece in a list compiled in the 1970s. Its existence verified the mathematical underpinnings of the standard model. Simply put, the existence of the Higgs field is a way to explain the weakness of the weak force responsible for radioactive decay, the burning of the sun, etc., while preserving the mathematical structure of a quantum field theory. The Higgs boson and excitation of the Higgs field is the only known particle that can claim to be part of the explanation for masses, for matter, and fields. Prior to the confirmation of the Higgs boson's existence, theorists happily made calculations, just assuming it did. In many cases, it didn't matter. An example is the confirmatory evidence for the standard model shown in the calculation of the so-called anomalous magnetic moment of the electron. The behavior of a standard model electron in a magnetic field has a slight anomaly compared to one viewed as just a spinning point particle in a theory without quantum mechanics due to the fact that the quantum mechanical vacuum is not empty. The standard model prediction for this anomaly agrees with the data up to 10 significant digits, constituting the most accurate verification of the prediction. The complexity of the calculation is illustrated by looking at some of the pieces that go into it. So these are representations of the so-called Feynman diagrams that I alluded to, which are representations of complex mathematical functions, but yet which are great organizational principles and, and help physicists to um, uh, 
to, to attack these very difficult problems. And when I say that the vacuum isn't empty, the point is that when you see the solid line and you see there's a bunch of stuff that's happening just that's always connected to, to the line, this is telling you something about what is happening at, 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 inside of the vacuum itself. The vacuum is not empty. It's full of these things that are virtually splitting into things and going back. Um, and that's something that's been, been well verified. And here, just, just stare at these numbers. So this is the current prediction that comes from the standard model. And what I have highlighted at the very end is the place where the, the, the part of the calculation that becomes uncertain. Because we've only calculated at a certain level, there's some input that goes into the calculation that isn't known perfectly well. And then you see the observation. Okay. We measure some quantities as or more accurately than the anomalous magnetic moment, such as the Earth-Moon distance. But nobody has a theory of what the Earth-Moon distance should be. I claim that particle physics has the most precise and robust description of what it is testing or studying of any science. Edward Fazer calls it the gold standard. If there is another science that makes a more precise test of its predictions, I would like to hear about it. Before proceeding, I would like to clarify what is that gold standard. The particle physicist is saying that a quantum field theory based on the standard model Lagrangian with the particle content and relations sketched in my previous table and with values of parameters bounded by data will describe subatomic phenomena under the following conditions. Gravitational forces can be ignored. Any higher theory that unifies the standard model and gravity yields the standard model in the weak gravity limit. Any limitations in our ability to calculate directly can be covered with models. Those models themselves capture some, but not all aspects of reality. And those models will eventually become unnecessary or less important as we overcome our limitations. There are a few other important topics and pieces of jargon that I need to introduce. I'm going to do this through what is called simulation. In particle physics, we test how well a theory describes data by producing simulated data under the theory model. The simulated data tells us what the experimental data would look like if the theory were true. We can compare these two simulated data and experimental data and make judgments as to their compatibility. I will use the output from a theory calculation of particle physics collisions called Pythia. Pythia is named after the oracle of Delphi. The Pythia spoke the truth, but in a poetic form that was sometimes misinterpreted by mere mortals. Pythia, the calculation, contains our knowledge of the standard model of physics and outputs predictions that can be compared to data to test the standard model or make measurements of the standard model. In full disclosure, I am one of the authors of Pythia, and my talk will have a bias of a theoretical physicist, though I am also a member of one of the experiments that discovered the Higgs boson. Pythia is an event generator. To understand this jargon, I need to explain what is an event and what is a generator. First, why is it called a generator? It generates simulated data that can be compared to real data. It is not simple, but involves a complex chain or convolution of probability functions. These probability functions are used to make choices 
relying on the fact that computers can provide sequences of bits that are, that are as good as random numbers without being random. The computer can be made to roll dice or flip coins. The simulated data made by Pythia is entirely deterministic. If the program produces a certain output, we can immediately state the cause. It is because that is the physics model I chose, that is how I wrote the computer program, that is how computers work, and that was the random bit I used to start rolling dice. What is the event that Pythia generates? As in common experience, an event is a change of some significance. Most of the trillions of proton-proton collisions at the LHCs at the LHC are not interesting to a high-energy particle physicist. They look for some evidence of a violent collision and then record the bits of information stored in the detector, a catch-all term, for all of the measurement devices in a typical particle physics experiment. The bits of information are used to reconstruct a picture of the particles produced in the violent collision, and the properties of those particles are studied to infer something about the standard model. This event can be presented as a list of particles and their properties. Let's look at the printed output, output of a Pythia event record. The output can be several thousand lines long and include more columns, so I have done some editing. The top or early part of the event output is shown here. What does it all mean? Well, first there's a column which is a simple counting number to help us identify which particle we're talking about. There's a code name for each of the types of particles. There is a symbol that represents the type of particle. Redundant information, but easy on the eye. People know a proton is a P, not as a 2212. There is a code, a status code, that designates something about the stage of evolution of the particle in the simulation. Did this particle decay? Something like that. There is information on motherhood and daughterhood. Where did the particles come from and where are they going? There is something called color. Most of my colleagues are from Europe and I always lose the spelling battle. <coughs> <laughs> Which are quantum numbers of the strong interaction. One of the forces I showed on my initial table. And then there are PX, PY, E, and M, which are the, mom the three momentum of a particle, its energy, and its mass. The type of event simulated here is a proton-proton collision at the LHC. The particle number one is a proton in the LHC beam. 2212 is the codename for a proton. The proton is traveling in the Z direction, with a momentum of 4,000 giga electron volts divided by the speed of light. That proton collides with a proton number two traveling in the minus z direction. Inside of the protons exist some gluons, the force carrier of the strong force, number three and number four. They only carry parts of the energy of the proton and are thus sometimes called partons. How much energy the gluons have in the simulation is determined by a probability distribution. I will discuss the meaning of this shortly. These two gluons collide, exchange some energy, and two other gluons emerge, number five and number six. This is indicated by the status minus 21 for the incoming and minus 23 for the outgoing particles. The 20s tell me 
and other physicists that this is a hard interaction, which is usually the most interesting thing happening in an event, the minus sign indicates that the parton is still changing. The rest of the edited event record shows the evolution of these incoming and outgoing partons. Eventually, the simulation produces a list of quasi-stable particles that are observed in the detector. Here is part of the history, also edited, near the end of the record. Again, the fourth column is the status of the particle. All those with status greater than zero are those that can be seen by the experiment. Particle number 1112, which is not stable, a neutral pion, will decay later into a pair of photons not shown. At the end, if we sum up the values of the momentum and the energy and the charge of all the particles with status greater than zero, those values will equal those for the two colliding protons. Now something changed between the first and the last part of the event. The first part lists gluons with color quantum numbers. You can see that there are values there starting from 101 and, and going upward. The second part lists particles with no color information. This is not a mistake. The theory predicts that quarks, gluons, and color should never be observed directly in nature. However, gluons move in the direction, in a direction in the event. They carry energy, and they have relationships to other gluons. Quarks, gluons, and color are not artificial, but useful concepts. They have real, observable consequences. The information in this event record is called Monte Carlo truth. It was generated using what are called Monte Carlo methods, and Monte Carlo was known for its casinos and the throwing of dice. And it represents our best guess of what truly happens in a particle collision. It is meant to be compared with particles, with what particles, it is meant to be compared with what particles are observed in a real data event. There are important differences, though, with the similar event record produced from our detector. First, a real experiment does not have access to partons or any of the other theorist information. Secondly, even those particles that can be observed, muons, kaons, protons, or some of their names, cannot be identified with absolute certainty. This event record is very much a history or a story. The original Pythia oracle told the truth, but listeners heard a story that they adapted to their own situations sometimes with unexpected consequences. It was this storytelling aspect that first attracted me to event generators, and one that is reinforced by drawing Feynman diagrams, representations of a complex mathematical equation that can be printed on paper and are quite often used by particle physicists to understand phenomenon and draw scientific conclusions. Probability distributions. Probabilities are not about what we know, but what we don't know. Probabilities themselves do not cause things to happen, but quantify what might happen under certain conditions. There are two types of calculations done in the standard model. If we don't understand fundamental dynamics or mechanisms, we can invent a probability model that makes predictions for some quantities of interest. The model might make a claim that is patently false, but allows us to solve a different problem we think is close to ours. We might claim the cause behind the predictions 
is part of the standard model that we can't fully calculate now, but which we assert we will one day with enough brain power and computers. We know the model is not true, but claim it is true enough and will eventually be replaced by one that is closer to the truth. These types of calculations lead to relatively poor stories and say close to nothing about causes. These stories say, we observe that this curve fits observed data and successfully predicts some new data before we observe them. The other type of calculation is where we claim to understand the dynamics, but the prediction still comes out as a probability. When two gluons collide and produce two outgoing ones, the outgoing gluons have some preference to be at small angles rather than large angles. We say that the cause is the strong force described mathematically by the standard model Lagrangian, and it is a fact of reality that we cannot know more than probabilities. The distinction in this second type of calculation is that there is not just a probability model, but fundamental principles for calculating those principles. These calculations tell a better story. We believe nature respects certain symmetries and conservation laws, and these are the consequences. The Holy Grail would be to find a story of why nature respects these symmetries and conservation laws. Observables. We compare simulated data using the properties of the event record listed above, previously, to real data using the similar list available from experiment by appealing to observables. Observables are designed to capture patterns in events. If we compare enough simulated events to data, treating them in the same way, patterns will emerge that may or may not be compatible. Since the events predicted by Pythia are based on probability distributions, no single theory event will look exactly like a particular data event. Instead, we compare the average properties of observables in theory events to data events. One possible observable is the count of charged particles produced per event. A convenient way to visualize our data is to use a histogram. This histogram has a number of bins for the possible integer values of charged particles that we observe in an event. For this example, assume we never see more than nine charged particles. We define a histogram that has 10 bins ranging from zero to nine. If we identify four charged particles in an event, we put one count into the corresponding bin, shown in the top left. If we see seven, we now put one count in bin seven, shown in the top right. If the next event also has four charged particles, we put another count into bin four, shown in the bottom left. The experiment continues collecting data, filling this histogram to deduce the probability distribution of producing charged particles, which might look something like what you see in the bottom right. Did I get left and right right? Okay, sorry. We can make the same histogram for the simulation, counting the number of charged particles produced in our simulated events. Typically, the Monte Carlo truth prediction depends upon a parameter that has an indirect effect of changing the charged particle, charge particle multiplicity. Parameters are changed in the simulation until it agrees with data, with agreement being based on some predefined criterion. This change of parameters, in theory, to match data, constitutes a measurement 
Note, we rarely measure directly the objects of fundamental interests, the entities in the standard model Lagrangian. The charged particle multiplicity is related to the dynamics of quarks and gluons produced in a violent collision, but we do not observe them directly. The Higgs boson is not seen directly. Only its decay products are observable, but they carry some fingerprints of their origin. Smearing. The relationship I made between Monte Carlo truth and data was incomplete. To compare experiment with theory predictions, we need to understand how a Pythia particle looks in our measurement devices. This is called smearing because you take a beautiful, clean theory prediction and make it dirty like the data. Smearing takes the Monte Carlo truth information and applies another model for the measurement devices that predicts how often a real electron, a Pythia electron, for example, looks like an observed electron. If our model of the detector predicts that we see a charged particle only 98% of the time, we multiply the number of charged particles observed by a factor of 1 divided by 0.98 before comparing to the Pythia prediction. What I've presented so far is the background to a discussion of uncertainty in particle physics surrounding what we take to be true. Science is conservative. It has to be. The instruments we use rely on an understanding of mechanical forces, electric currents, and sometimes even quantum mechanical phenomenon. If our understanding of any of these phenomenon is inaccurate or incomplete, then we can misinter misinterpret the signal from our measuring devices and make an incorrect inference or deduction. Often a century of experimental investigation and experience lie behind our measurements. The problem of understanding if our measurement devices are accurate is addressed using calibration. We use terms like benchmark, stolen from carpenters, or standard candle, stolen from astronomers. Here is an example. Scintillators are devices that produce light signals when a charged particle passes through them. To do science with scintillators, we need to know how often this actually happens. This is known as the efficiency. We can determine the efficiency from data, if we have two such scintillators, a source of charged particles, and a timing device that can tell if both scintillators produce a light signal at about the same time. Cosmic rays are heavy nuclei that are constantly bombarding our atmosphere. We don't understand entirely where they come from, but they are a free source of charged particles. We can just sit with our scintillators and wait for a charged particle to pass through our first one. When we see a signal in the first scintillator, we check for a signal in the second one. Sometimes there is a signal, and sometimes not. This relative rate is the efficiency. This works because the first scintillator gives an absolute yes that a charged particle was there even if it doesn't say yes every time a charged particle passes through. If every time the first scintillator says yes, the second one does also, then the second scintillator is 100% efficient. This example is idealized, but calibrations like this are necessary to trust our measurement devices. At this LHC, a significant uncertainty arises when measuring rare events at very high energies. If you only have a standard candle or benchmark for measuring relatively low energies, 
how much do you believe in excess of events at high energy, where you could simply be misinterpreting the readout of your devices. This depends on your confidence in the whole chain of known phenomenon behind the measurement and whatever method you use to calibrate the measurement devices. Uncertainty in analysis methods. The practice of physics at the LHC is to search for or exclude something new or to measure something to a higher precision than was done previously. Let us return to the discovery of the Higgs boson. While a number of pieces of evidence were combined to claim discovery, I will focus on the rare decay of the Higgs boson to a pair of photons. The strategy is to identify events with two high energy large angle photons, construct a mass from them, and search for a bump in the data. This is an actual data event collected by CMS, the Compact Muon Solenoid Experiment, which is why we abbreviate it to CMS, that was a potential candidate to be a Higgs boson. The green towers to, an to a physicist are, are beautiful examples of a well-reconstructed photon. So there are two photons. The photons are very well separated from each other. Um, there's not a lot of stuff going on in the middle of the detector. This is just a beautiful, clean, possible Higgs boson event, but I can't tell you with 100% certainty that this is what it is. Now, upon rereading this, I realized there was some jargon. Some explanation is necessary. All Higgs bosons have a mass and a spin, and a particular Higgs boson has energy and momentum. When a Higgs boson decays, it can undergo a substantial change to two photons. However, the mass, the spin, the energy, and the momentum do not change, and the mass can be determined from the pair of photons. A bump is a number of events that cluster around one range of mass values so as to stick up above the other mass values. And this is the histogram that actually was presented as part of the evidence. Well, actually, this is perhaps a little bit later. But this is the type of histogram that is, that is presented as some of the evidence for the existence of a Higgs boson. And even though I drew a curve on it, that's, I didn't, but there's a curve on it in red, uh, that draws your eye to something that sticks up above the background. Um, it's pretty clear that that, that, is what is, that that is there. And as an aside, the human eye is actually very good at doing these sorts of fits in, internally and, and seeing that there's something that jumps up above, um, above a flat distribution. The type of measurement I just explained might sound straightforward, but it is not. Quarks and antiquarks carry electric charge, so they are able to annihilate and produce photon pairs too. Since quarks and antiquarks are in the protons themselves, they are abundant and produce many photon pairs, orders of magnitude more photon pairs than a Higgs signal. That is bad. However, the mass of the photon pairs from the background is predicted to be a continuum, and you would not expect to see a bump. That is good, except that photons must be measured with imperfect devices, and the reconstructed photon energies are smeared with respect to the truth. That is bad, except the resolution is quite good. I believe hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on these measurement devices, so they should be good. Um, and a very narrow Higgs boson signal is not smeared out too much. Given our assumption that the background has no structure, 
we can hypothesize that locally, the pair mass distribution is a straight line fit to the data. Here you see they actually did something a little bit more clever, um, but it's still a, a, um, a continuous fit to, to the background. The bump we are looking for is relatively small, so we don't expect it to bias much a fit to a range of data that is mostly background. Then with the assumed background shape, either a straight line or something slightly more complicated here, we can calculate in every mass window the probability that the observed shape would be as large as what is observed if no Higgs boson signal were present. If the probability of the background explaining what is seen is very small, a number agreed upon by the community, then we claim that an observed bump in a mass window is evidence for or discovery of a new particle. And that is what happened on July 4th, 2012. This analysis is complicated by the fact that we did not know the value for the Higgs boson mass we were looking for. When we look for something rare, like a background that jumps up to look like a bump when it shouldn't, in many places, the chances for rare events increases as well. This look elsewhere effect increases the number of fake bumps, so we had to work much harder to claim discovery than if we knew the Higgs boson mass beforehand. The real analysis, as you can imagine, is much more complicated than this and relies on making simulated data for the backgrounds under different assumptions about the theory and the detector measurement devices. These different assumptions account for what you don't know about the background, that is, the uncertainty. We do estimate how much the theory can go wrong, but the length to which we go is often based on experience and community standards. You just have to stop being skeptical at some point. The methods we use to look at data and interpret it in terms of theory are laden with uncertainties that are addressed using a combination of cross-checks and data, a faith in the extrapolation of theory predictions into new regimes, and a number of common sense criterion that are mainly based on experience. Uncertainty in counting. If the subtitle of this section sounds ridiculous, that is because it is. There is no ambiguity in counting. If an LHC detector records 10 events with certain properties, that is what happened, period. However, as soon as we begin to interpret data, there is some uncertainty that is introduced with a reason and a reason to quantify uncertainty. For example, if we observe 10 events with a high-energy electron, how many were truly produced? If we know the efficiency that I discussed earlier, and the uncertainty on that efficiency for detecting electrons under the given conditions, we might claim that 11.3 plus or minus 0.2 events were actually produced. What are 11.3 events? Do I believe that nature produces 11.3 events? No, I do not. I believe that sometimes it produces 10, sometimes 11, often 9, rarely 0, never minus one. <laughs> the standard model makes statistical predictions. Imagine simulating data thousands of times. On average, this calculation might predict an experiment will observe 11.3 events, but no single prediction is for 11.3 events. The statistical nature of our theory interpretation, and hence what we believe is true about nature, introduces an uncertainty. Consider a fair coin, such as what Father Ambrose brought up yesterday. 
one that is guaranteed to produce heads or tails with equal probability. You flip it six times and record heads, 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 heads. Is that possible? Yes. Is that probable? It is as probable as any other combination. But if you actually experience this event, you might wonder if this, co if this coin is loaded to give heads. Or you might flip it six times and see heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. If it is a fair coin, that is as probable as heads, 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 heads. But if you actually experience it, you might wonder if there is some memory built into the coin. In each case, a statistical analysis of our coin flipping will return a probability to flip heads and some uncertainty. Notice this difference between probability theory and a statistical analysis of what is observed. A probability theory, such as the binomial distribution for flipping coins, will say something about what you might observe. But statistical analysis takes what you observe and ask questions about the possible probability theories that caused it, a loaded coin or one with a memory. This type of statistical uncertainty arises every time we take data and try to interpret it. Statisticians, and this includes particle physicists who are experts in statistics, don't always agree on the interpretation. But this almost never matters except when it does. I cannot give the topic justice except to say that you can come to different conclusions on what the data is saying based on assumptions, and those assumptions, those assumptions are sometimes historical. The particle physicist seems to be committed to the idea that a statistical analysis of data leads to truth statements. It seems dissatisfying to say that we are measuring a probability distribution for a parameter that has a definitive value or a hypothesis that is true or false. But as we take more data, that probability distribution becomes highly peaked around one value. In this way, an objective method eventually yields a subjective truth. I believe that the Higgs boson exists. I believe that the Higgs boson mass is around 125 giga electron volts divided by the speed of light squared. So far, I have focused on what a physicist can get wrong when confronting data. Now I will discuss what can go wrong with the theory. I showed you earlier a representation of the standard model Lagrangian in most of its gory detail. I skipped how we use it. Most standard model calculations, like the one for the anomalous magnetic moment of the electron, are based on perturbation theory. The idea behind perturbation theory is that there is some small quantity that can be used to control the accuracy of your calculation. While this small quantity is not always easy to identify, or actually that small, a type of robust perturbation theory has been developed that has allowed calculations up to three powers in that small quantity, perhaps more for the anomalous magnetic moment of the electron. I believe that's up to six powers. These are exceedingly difficult calculations, and the comparisons of these calculations with data are not free of ambiguities. The use of perturbation theory places boundaries on where it is consistent to calculate in the standard model. We introduce models to bootstrap ourselves beyond those boundaries to compare to data, and that is mostly what Pythia does. Any standard model calculation depends on inputs from data. 
For example, the strong coupling value used to make predictions of the backgrounds to the Higgs boson had to be extracted from data to be used in a calculation. It is not predicted by the theory. This extraction is done with a particular uncertainty that is tied to the accuracy of perturbation theory used in the calculation. It is not quite a tautology, but it might sound like one. More seriously, for calculations at the LHC, the density of quarks and gluons inside of our proton has to be estimated. Several groups of physicists performed this analysis using allegedly the same, tech, the same theory, but the devil is in the details, but also with different selections of data, different parameterizations, and different numerical methods. They produce different answers that are not always consistent and introduce another layer of uncertainty. If the state of predictions in the standard model seems less clean than you thought, I must tell you that it gets worse. I just so happen to spend much of my research on the worse. I have so far skirted the fact that the elegant standard model, Lagrangian is a mathematical description of quarks and gluons, as well as W and Z bosons, the Higgs boson, the photon, and the leptons, electrons, neutrinos, and such. The world that we observe contains particles, protons, pions, etc., as well as photons and leptons. To make quantitative comparisons between what is observed and what is predicted by theory, there must be a connection between the quarks and gluons and the known particles. There is hope that a branch of theoretical physics called latticed QCD can calculate on computers this evolution of quarks and gluons into particles using the standard model Lagrangian alone with no or entirely controllable approximations. However, this has not yet come to fruition despite decades of research. Instead, we rely on models, such as hadronization models. These models are motivated by theory, but are otherwise ad hoc. They are quite successful in completing the chain and allowing comparisons of standard model Lagrangian-based calculations to particle data. The price is the introduction, introduction of parameters that need to be fit to data with an uncertainty. Hadronization models and other phenomena that cannot be calculated from first principles introduce on the order of 100 parameters into our theory description. To be honest, maybe only 15 or 20 of such parameters are essential to describe most of the data observed at the LHC, but this is still a large number. For most particle physicists who analyze data and are not authors of Pythia, these parameters are nuisances that must be averaged over when they compare to the pure theory of the standard model. Uncertainty arises not just from the averaging over these nuisance parameters, but in the goodness of the models themselves in describing all the relevant data. Fortunately, these models introduce an uncertainty that is usually small compared to all the other ones discussed, such as the experimental techniques and the statistical errors from data. However, as we ask deeper questions and make more complicated and sophisticated measurements at the LHC, this will no longer be true. So I have a lot of work to do. Despite the dirty laundry that I have aired before you, I am confident in the amazing predictive power of the standard model. The picture simply isn't as pure as you might imagine for the gold standard of science. I will now try to organize and re-present the major themes in my talk. I make no claims to originality. I hope that my picture of the practice of physics is useful data for the ongoing study of truth 
uncertainty and confidence that is taking place here. Oh, you're giving me time, sorry. <laughs> the four themes are, one, the mind-independent character of what we hold to be true, the role of probabilities in coming to some degree of belief in the facts of the natural world, the incompleteness of the highly mathematical description of nature encoded in the standard model Lagrangian, and four, this storytelling aspect of our description of the subatomic world. Reality appears to be mind-independent. I have sketched a complex chain of empirical facts and theoretical relationships behind our measuring devices and techniques, and a community engaged in the practice of physics relying on this chain to make deductions and inferences. It seems completely improbable that this chain would be coherent if the facts and relationships did not correspond to real things in the world. This is the no miracles argument, and it is sometimes criticized by giving examples of entities or concepts that were real, that were not real, but were useful, such as phlogiston. In fact, good models ask, yeah, good models, those that explain something but also make verifiable predictions, can be obviously wrong, but help us to ask good questions that lead us to some unexpected insight. This is good science. But the vast number of concepts that would have to be wrong, but useful, and somehow consistent with other wrong but useful concepts, staggers my imagination. Quarks, gluons, the strong interaction, Higgs bosons are hardly invisible and cause effects that are as real as any other. Probabilities are basic predictions of the standard model and are elements of the models needed to relate the pure theory to experiment and are also a part of our interpretation of data in the face of uncertainty. Probabilities reflect our lack of knowledge. The standard model gives a mathematical prescription of, to attach a number to these to a potential state or configuration of elementary particles. In a high-energy collision, one of those states is actualized in a change from a particle beam to a spray of particles observed in a detector. According to quantum mechanics, the lack of knowledge reflected in our probability calculations is a fundamental aspect of reality. All tests have confirmed this. It may be that a more complex mathematical theory or a refined picture of the essence of energy and space itself may advance our understanding of this fact, but it remains true that our experiences in the larger world don't translate to all aspects of the subatomic world. Probabilities are also related to our interpretation of data. The theorems of statistical analysis tell us how to relate observations to probability distributions or parameters and postulates in the standard model. Almost nobody believes the facts that facts, almost nobody believes that facts are probability distributions, but probabilities are about what we don't know, and we often don't know quite a bit. Uncertainties in measurements, methods, and simulation limit what we can know to be true objectively. Uh, I'll summarize this, this uh, next to last paragraph. The mathematized representation of nature given by the standard model cannot be the complete story. The cornerstone of the standard model is a quantum field theory built on the standard model Lagrangian. Lagrangian is used to calculate. Particle physicists calculate and check. Calculate and check. Nature does not calculate. You can ask me more details about that. But um, nature provides values for quantities, not bounds. And we can only get bounds from computations. Computation is a human tool and requires the interpretation of symbols. In his 1960 article, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences, Nobel Prize winner Eugene Wigner concludes, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics 
is a wonderful gift, which we neither understand nor deserve. Finally, storytelling is an undeniable aspect of physics. Feynman diagrams and Pythia event listings are illustrations in a graphic novel about high-energy collisions. This imagery is used in the scientific process itself to develop strategies to test the standard model. Also, we simply do not write scientific papers in equations or algorithms or data alone. We use models that do not have rigorous and elegant mathematical foundations, such as the standard model, to connect to macroscopic measurements, and these models need to be described and made intelligible. There is a narrative glue that binds together theory, experiment, and data in the practice of physics. Could this just be a limitation of our current calculational methods or understanding of what the theory means? If so, then our current mathematized picture is incomplete, and we should work to remove as much of the dissatisfying narrative as possible. Could this be a limitation to human understanding or our ability to communicate? Instead of a limitation, this is a boundary condition. Embodied intellects must communicate in this way. I see no way to escape storytelling in the sciences, and I have no problem with that. Everybody who has read a great novel knows that the story can tell truths without the characters, dialogue, or setting being strictly real, and that the imagination is needed to tie it all together. Thank you. Okay, so let's. So the, the first question is to talk about um, what are the meaning of, of causes in, in the, these particle physics calculations. So this is something that has that has bothered me, right? So the causes of all the things that are happening with electrons, you point at the standard model electron. You, stand, you point at the standard model Lagrangian. Okay, so that tells me something about what electrons do or what Higgs bosons do. Why does this electron? Do what it does. Why does this, what does this particular proton know? No, it doesn't know anything, right? No, this is a problem that has bothered me, and I don't think that is sketched out. Yeah, but what does that mean? Right, there must be something built into what an electron is, what a Higgs boson is. And there is some truth to that standard model Lagrangian about what it means, but it's a mathematization. And it can't give me everything. And I know that because it doesn't really tell me what the... There are all the things that I didn't talk about that get swept under the carpet, right? What is mass? What is space? What is time? What is spin? Those aren't addressed. And I think those are fundamental parts of nature. Okay, and the second question was? Uh, causality in nature versus relationship to the simulator. Computational relationship to the simulator. Is that... As good as we can do for causality when we're modeling something? Well, we sort of want to, so like I told you, the, the, the whole prediction is deterministic, but it's based on the probability functions, which are not deterministic that come from, from the theory. And you want to do the calculation that way so that I can do it, and you can do it, and you reproduce it. And it gives us control. Um, and it allows us to change a parameter in the model with the same initial conditions and see what will happen instead of having to worry about, you know, what if I also change the initial condition? What if I also change um, 
the, the, the first uh, thing that happened, right? So I don't believe that nature is actually you know, rolling dice or flipping coins, right? But it gives us a way to sample these probability distributions. I think that's also part of the claim that this picture must be incomplete because that isn't what happens in nature. And that's the part that I didn't, didn't talk about, that all the ways we use to calculate can't possibly what's going on in nature. Yet I've heard my colleagues say, yes, um, nature does an all-orders calculation, because I talked about, yeah. okay, I don't know what that means, honestly. That was a great question. It was probably deeper yeah. than, than, than I... Isn't it the only thing that we know what it means? Because we know computation, and so maybe we can project that on nature, because that's what we know. It's the only thing we can know. We don't know what we don't know. <laughs> I cannot disagree with that. <laughs> and and, and uh, is there a projection? Yes, but it's part of our, it's not all we are. Right? So that's why I, I like to stress this, this storytelling part of, of putting it all together. So the computation part is part of our internal database. Right? But there's more to us than that. Unless you think we're just computers and then you probably shouldn't be at this meeting. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, as in as simplified form as you can, would you be able to take us through one of the mechanisms for the detectors? So on your end, presumably you're seeing like numbers or lights as an output. What's the actual mechanism by which? Sure. So one thing I talked about charge. A thing that's relatively easy to measure is is charge tracks. So charge particles. Now I already I said charge tracks. So you take a magnetic field. Okay, so if you had an elementary electromagnetic class and you're right-handed <laughs> and not left-handed, you know that a charged particle moving through a magnetic field will, will bend in a certain direction. Okay, so we produce these particles, we put them in a magnetic field and they will bend. Then you have a gas, okay, and that gas is usually rather dilute and you put it in, we have some electric field as well so that that gas will actually begin to ionize when the charged particle is going through. Okay, so you will actually see tracks. And you see these little bumps, these, and then there's a whole um, industry of, of figuring out when there's a whole bunch of overlapping tracks of how you fit a curve to that. But when you fit a curve to that, then you have made a measurement of the momentum if you know the magnetic field. Is that part of what you were asking? How do you... How do you where, where do you decide to understand maybe making a magnetic field because we put some magnets out, but how do you actually detect the particles or the tracks? Oh, yeah. so now, all these, yeah. the, now they're, they're, there are all these little bits of ionization, right? Okay, so if you put an electric field, those will drift. Okay, so you have the detector and they drift and you pick up the time when they come so you can project backwards. But I don't think it's any more complicated than what's, what must be going on in our eye. It's not like, oh, that's a really complicated complicated way to see things, and I'm really a physicist, assume a spherical eye, uh, but, but there's something really complicated in going into the eye to make the picture that we just all take for granted. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith. 
and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.